Cosmos, greetings, comrades, and welcome to the extended preview version of episode 12 of Prolet Cult, the Antifada side project about the paranormal and the parapolitical. You're about to hear part of my interview with Wu Ming One of the Italian writing collective Wu Ming. We talk about the origins of the group and Italian autonomia. We talk about the Luther Bosset project, which played satanic panic pranks in the 90s, and how and why they wrote the novel Q about the peasant wars, and how and why that novel inspired QAnon. We'll also talk about their new novel, UFO 78, and their analysis of the recent UFO news. And listen to the end of the episode for a preview of my audio essay, End of the UFO Era. If you want to hear the full thing, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash the Antifada. Sign up to receive all of our bonus content, access to our Discord community, and if you DM me your mailing address on Patreon, I'll send you a letterpress postcard and a bunch of stickers. So please support the show if you can at patreon.com slash the Antifada. We can't do the show without you. And here is Bullet Cult 12. Anyway, I'll say it one more time. QAnon as a movement or a cult or a terrorist threat has nothing to do with our novel and the other way around. Uh, I said they repeated directly because even if we never were involved in QAnon, we decided to take up the topic uh, because we started to study QAnon, to do research on QAnon, but we're not involved in QAnon in any way. It wasn't a prank started by us. We would never have done that. But sort of what I meant by the question is, and maybe it'd be better if I explain a little bit the uh, the satanic panic prank from Luther Blissett. It was uh, it was sort of like dropping these clues, you know, making some photos and, and handing it off to the press to to trick them into running with the story that there is this satanic secret society that are doing these illicit things that might be pedophilic or, or illegal or, or murderous or whatever. And I think, you know, if, if someone were to try that, I don't know how that worked then, but if someone were to try that today, that would just be passed around in QAnon circles as a fact. And the, you know, the coup de grace of like revealing that that was all a prank and it was all to show how easily fooled the media and uh, consumers of the media are wouldn't matter because people don't believe those things because they think it's true. They believe it because they, it's like sexy and interesting to them and it like confirms some like, uh, you know, suspicions of how the world works that allows them to ignore how the world really works. Um, so the, I guess, do you think these pranks, if, you know, if they were ever successful in like, uh, you know, um, altering these narratives or defeating these narratives are, are no longer successful or no longer, uh, plausible to uh to do what they aim to do from a left-wing perspective well those media hoaxes uh the one we played the one we pulled uh, in the 90s we were very elaborated very complex very multi-rayed we worked for years on on those media hoaxes because uh, they they weren't only false news or or, or false rumors they were uh, media environments you know, uh, very complex uh, stories with subsets of stories. Uh, they lasted very long. Uh, we let them work their way in the media. Uh, and we collected all proof, all, ve- all evidence uh, um, that, that we were the authors uh, uh, in order to be ready for the moment of the reveal. 
Okay, and the reveal was the most important moment uh, because uh, we exp uh, we usually explained what bugs in the information system we had exploited in order to be able to spread uh, those um, uh, those falsehoods, uh, and uh, we ex uh, explained why we did it. So, uh, for example, the, the all the media hoaxes. Uh, on uh, satanic panic, uh, we're about uh, diffusing the media hysteria on those issues, uh, satanic ritual abuse, pedophilia, e etc. But uh, it was a completely different media landscape. Uh, um, uh, now the situation is very difficult. What we can retain is the spirit of those activities of those actions of uh, warf uh, of uh, uh, communication guerrilla warfare. Uh, but we have to do um, a thoroughly new inventory of our conceptual and strategic and tactical toolbox. Uh, now, nowadays, uh, the old toolbox isn't useful uh, anymore. Uh, but the spirit, uh, I think the spirit uh, is, um, is still uh, is, is still uh, a good inspiration. The fact that we organized those hoaxes, etc. But uh, we don't have recipes uh, for today's media landscape because it's completely different. Probably, as you said, uh, if uh, um, any, anyone uh, came out uh, uh, with evidence that QAnon was a, was, a, was a complete hoax, a prank made by people from the opposite side of the political spectrum, I think it's high unlikely that this happens but even if it happened people wouldn't believe uh, it, it would believe them it would uh, sound like a new uh, ramification a new branching uh, branching off uh, in uh, a new branching out uh, in in uh, in the QAnon narratives and sub narratives uh, etc it would be immediately absorbed in the QAnon related uh, narrative. Uh, okay, so uh, that's uh, the main reason why we would never have done that, uh, because uh, because uh, uh, as Foucault's pendulum or the history of how the Illuminati became a staple of popular culture, uh, uh, all those stories are cautionary tales, uh, um, pranks, uh, uh, parody, caricature. Uh, satire and that kind of stuff uh, uh, are very likely to fail uh, in front of conspiratorial thinking and mm. conspiracy fantasies because uh, nowadays conspiratorial thinking is able to co-opt anything, I recuperate anything, absorb anything. There's nothing more excessive. Parody has become impossible. Yeah, so this is a good place, I think, to transfer to your most recent project, which is the novel UFO 78. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, it, in UFO 78 was recently published in Italy uh, in October 2022. Now it's being translated into German and Greek and Catalan. Uh, the, those are the languages I, I, I remember. Uh, I, but um, even if it was published recently, it began to take shape many years ago. Uh, the first idea dates back to, to, dates back to 2006. Yeah. 
uh, in those days, we launched into a narrative improvisation centered uh, on the 70s once again. But it was our 1970s. It was about the things that fascinated us when we were children. UFOs, the paranormal, the Bermuda Triangle, Uri Geller sp bending spoons on TV with his telekinetic powers. And above all, uh, uh, this guy, Peter Colosimo, uh, Peter Colosimo's cosmic archaeology books. Uh, Colosimo was a very peculiar character. He made the theory of ancient astronauts popular in Italy, but he wasn't a right-wing crank. He was a leftist. He had worked at the L'Unità, the official organ of the Italian Communist Party. He spent a few years working at a radio station in Yugoslavia before uh, before Tito and, and Stalin broke relationships. At a certain point, he even hosted a program on Italian public television. And his books were bestsellers, all of them. I remember I, I saw them in every house. Um, we uh, set uh, uh, the story in 1978. It, it, that's the year the Red Brigades kidnapped uh, former Prime Minister Aldo Moro. Uh, it's the year uh, when the, the state of emergency began, you know, the anti-terrorism, uh, uh, special legislation, uh, repression, etc. But, but curiously enough, it's also the year of the greatest wave of UFO sightings in the 20th century. Uh, a very important phenomenon, still little understood. Uh, anthropologists, uh, sociologists, uh, social psychologists brought about it uh, because there were more than 2,000 uh, UFO sightings in the sky of Italy uh, that year alone. It's a, it's, it's a record. It, it, it never happened before or, or, or after. So we imagined a writer uh, loosely inspired by Colosimo and a conference on UFOs, which was scheduled to take place in Rome uh, on March 16th. But of course, March 16th is the day Moro was kidnapped in Rome, uh, and so uh, all plans were cancelled because the city plunged into chaos. Uh, because th that morning there was the armed attack on Aldo Moro's convoy in Via Fani. So the the the, the question was uh, was what are all those ufologists going to do in a city uh, plunged into the state of emergency? So, so uh, as we often do, uh, uh, we didn't develop those ideas immediately. We put them aside and waited as we wrote other stuff. Uh, every now and then we will put them out of the drawer and, uh, and update them. Uh, um, and we put them out definitively in 2018. We kept working on them uh, during the pandemic emergency. Uh, just as new spikes in UFO sightings were being recorded around the world, because during the pandemic, the whole UFO phenomenon started again. Um, so uh, we kind of anticipated the UFO revival. Now they call them UAP, but that's the official nomenclature. Uh, most people still call them UFO uh, so we, we we call them UFO. Yeah, maybe we well. can get a little bit into the uh, the the difference between the UFO and the UAP era when we talk about your your recent piece in Ill Will. Um, but yeah, just yeah, focusing on the book for a second. I love the cover of it. It's uh, I believe it's Aldomaro's car, but as a UFO. Um, and it this plot sounds awesome. So when is this going to come out in English? 
it's uh, <laughs> we don't know that's a strange story uh, english translations of our books it's a uh, uh, baffling situations because our books are translated into all kinds of languages almost every national language of continental europe plus some asian languages but not in english mm. the last one was altai more than 10 years ago and uh, we we came to call it the english curse you know like a <laughs> For unfathomable, unfathomable reasons, none of the books that we wrote in the 2010s was ever published in the US or the UK. Now we are fully into the 20s and the situation hasn't changed. It's weird, but I mean, what can we do about it? <laughs> well, I'll just have to be like a, a Marxist in the late 60s, early 70s and, and just uh, read it in a, Italian as if it were the Grundrisse. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yes, that's that's good. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a good parallelism. Uh, I, I, I just wanted to tell you, it's not Aldo Moro's car. It's the car uh, that the raid brigade used in order to put Aldo Moro's corpse oh, okay. in the trunk. They put it in the trunk. So in a way, it was his car, you know, if he's in the trunk. It's... In a way, yeah. <laughs> it's still the, the first vehicle of Italy. <laughs> So we, we, we teased everybody with the plot of that book. Hopefully it will come out in English one day, hopefully not too far in the future. Um, but, you know, even after the book is written, uh, there's this UFO story is uh, it has really, I think it's, this is one of the most important eras in the history of UFOs that began in uh, 1949 with Kenneth Arnold's sightings in Washington and the Roswell incident. Um and my theory, and uh, I'm I'm going to include a little sort of monologue on this in another part of the episode, is that this is the end of the UFO era because, you know, initially how did how did the UFO era really begin? You had these sightings of UFOs, and then a couple weeks later, you have the the Air Force, like the U.S. military, saying, "Hey, we recovered one. <laughs> we recovered one in the desert," and that was you know, all the evidence that the world needed, that something was really going on here. But then a week later, the military says, like, okay, it's a weather balloon. So, But that gives rise to this conspiracy th theory thinking that, like, well, the military said they had one. Now they're saying it's a weather balloon. Obviously, the weather balloon is a cover-up. So for about, uh, what was it, uh, 80 years, you know, until the present day, um, anyone who said that these things were weather balloons was like, okay, well, you're... You know, you're believing the, the government's lie about what these things are. Um, and now we finally got to the moment where the government is, uh, the U.S. And, uh, and Canadian Air Forces are shooting down these unidentified flying objects, these UAPs, that are described, by the way, almost exactly like the, uh, the recent UAPs were described, like Nimitz and Tic Tac and those. Um, the, the same sort of description of, like, they're, you know, they're flying on their own volition. We don't know how they work. They're shooting these things down, and it turns out they're all weather balloons. So do you yeah. think they were just weather balloons all along? <laughs> Certainly. 
those uh, uh, UAPs were not unidentified uh, because we identified them. The, uh, at least one of them was a Pico balloon, an amateur weather balloon, uh, the, the, the kind that uh, radio amateurs use in, in order to make their um, uh, packet radios fly. Uh, it, it, they cost $30 and uh, the US government spent a million and a half dollars in order to take them down. Uh, so the, the, it's a, a asymmetrical war, I think. Well, they were, they were just pieces of sky trash, as they call it. But um, I think there are two different subjects we have to deal with. On the one hand, uh, UFOs or UAPs in the strict sense. I mean, mysterious aerial phenomena, unexplained lights in the sky, that kind of stuff. On the other hand, uh, there's the other issue, the hypothesis of space aliens visiting our planet, extraterrestrial beings possessing technologies that make them capable of uh, long journeys in space or between parallel dimensions. Uh, we're very close uh, uh, to the interpretation given by one character uh, in, in um, UFO 78, one character in particular, uh, Jimmy Fruzzetti. He's a record store owner and crowd rock connoisseur who calls himself not a ufologist, but a ufophile. According to him, um, in the expression unidentified flying object, unidentified doesn't mean to be identified at any cost. Quite the contrary. Uh, in, in an age and in a social system that tends, tends more and more to identify us, to track our every movement and choice in order to define us, to pigeonhole us, to control us, uh, what remains unidentified is precious and should be cultivated and protected. The relevance of UFOs uh, lies in this, in their, the fact that they remain open to multiple interpretations. Uh, they interweave uh, with multiple dreams. They interact with multiple desires. Uh, uh, we will say that UFOs have always been primarily a poetic force and they always appear when we need them uh, during lockdowns in, in 2020 it was like that in a very con constrained situation you know we were very distressed uh, distressed we needed to come out of that shell uh, looking at the sky and, and we saw ufos again um, and this is the first issue then there's the other issue. Are there any extraterrestrial living beings out there? Uh, what I can say is that the universe is immense. Uh, so th there might be other life forms uh, somewhere, even uh, other civilizations. Uh, governments and scientific institutions don't rule that out. Uh, on the contrary, they keep funding research programs to, to see if there's anyone out there. Uh, a few days ago, I read an interesting objection to the possibility that life may exist in other parts of the universe, because in October 2022, uh, scientists detected a gigantic gamma ray explosion. Uh, it was probably caused by the collapse of a giant star. It took place more than a two, billion, 2 billion light years away, but it was so huge that it bombarded Earth with radiation, you know, fortunately, Earth has a magnetosphere, you know, the so-called Van Allen belts, 
that made life possible because they protect us from solar wind and also from other kinds of radiation. Otherwise, those gamma rays would have killed us all. Uh, those rays reached about 3% of the entire known universe. They also would have killed the crew of any starship out there. Uh, given that this kind of events happen more often than we can imagine, and not every planet has a magnetosphere, for example, Mars, Venus, and Pluto don't have a magnetosphere, we, we, that could mean uh, that the beginning of life is an unlikely exceptional thing, uh, and it may have taken place uh, only here on Earth. Uh, these are also conjectures. Uh, another reason, uh, another reason to, to think that way is that in astrobiology, there's this concept of the habitability zone, and you know, Earth and Mars, and I, I, you know, I think Venus are in our solar system's habitability zone, which means it's not too far from the sun and not too close. Um, but there's also a galactic habitability zone. So when we hear about these uh, Earth-like exoplanets that lie in their solar system's habitability zone. And we think, and, you know, scientists say we found a planet that might have life. Uh, oftentimes they are not in the galactic, their galactic habitability zone. There's, so there's um, the, that reduces the amount of likely planets exponentially. And, you know, there's also this concept that the universe is infinite. And so there's infinite worlds. And so there must be life somewhere. Uh, yeah. But, I don't. I don't think the universe is infinite, actually. Uh, but that's like a maybe that's a deeper question. And um, but the point of this is that there's an optimistic way to to fill out the Drake equation, which is the equation that estimates how many communicable civilizations are are there in our galaxy. And you know, Carl Sagan is famous for filling that out and saying that there's hundreds of thousands like existing right now that we can communicate. And there's a there's a more pessimistic way, which has always been that uh, uh, if, if civilizations were to arise like us, we'll, they would be like us and wipe themselves out pretty quickly. But in your piece for Ill Will, you, you maybe have like a third kind of take on this equation that's maybe optimistic in a different sense. Yeah, if, yeah. If you follow the me. Fact that, uh, yeah, the fact that uh, the unidentified, uh, which uh, is in both acronyms, in UFO and the UAP, the, the first uh, uh, word is unidentified. The fact that, that uh, people look for the unidentified, they need the unidentified, uh, is an expression of a ut utopian impulse. Uh, we think, uh, uh, we think uh, that uh, UFOs or UAPs intercepts and uh, interpret uh, uh, a desire for something else, for somewhere else. Uh, the, the problem, the problem, what follows after that uh, is that uh, this uh, utopian impulse too often is hijacked uh, by conspiratorialism. And that's a political problem, you know, because l let's assume, you know, for a second that other civilizations exist, that space aliens exist. Let's assume it, you know, as a theoretical you know, uh, starting point. Uh, whether they may or may not have already come into contact with us, whether may be to some extent among us, whether governments and the intelligence community uh, are intent on, you know, an ongoing cover-up, that's a, a, a different matter. Uh, and this terrain is polluted by 
conspiracy fantasies, toxic narratives, uh, grifters of all kinds. You know, there's a question. No? What aren't they telling us? That question is right in principle. Uh, because governments, ruling elites and the military uh, act against the common good and they keep a lot of information secrets. That's true. It's even a truism. Uh, the ruling class defense system, we call it capitalism. Others may prefer different terms and concepts. In any case, it's a system of pressing humanity at the entire biosphere. What conspiracy fantasies do, however, is overestimate elites and governments. They see their intervention everywhere. They attribute them more power than they actually have. This applies to the UFO discourse and to any other uh, discourse. Uh, you know, um, I, I wrote a whole book about that, La Cudi Complotto, which was published two years ago, 600 pages long. It's about, uh, you know, conspiracy fantasies and the fact that they defend the system. They defend the system because they give uh, a, a contribution to the stabilization of the system by pointing uh, false explanations, uh, pointing scapegoats. Uh, uh, I, I called it deviated anti-capitalism, you know, and uh, the, the, that also has to do with uh, the conspiracy fantasies about UFOs. Uh, but what I was getting at, the, your piece sums up with this uh, line, capitalist realism imagines capitalist aliens. And that's always been yeah. sort of my take on the Drake equation, um, which is when, when people tend to talk about aliens, like I think the optimism that they exist and that there's something benevolent about them, like if the, you know, the Posadist idea or the Star Trek idea that first contact will bring us into this galactic society um, and the way that the Drake equation is filled out optimistically based on that hope uh, is that aliens will develop this sort of civilization and will move past the peril that we're in right now into some sort of sustainability and enter into this like, you know, political federation with other planets like in Star Trek. Um, but I actually, I don't think that is optimistic to think that every intelligent uh, uh, creature in the universe wants to explore for example why is it a good thing for us to go and colonize mars or um to send out messages desperately trying to contact other worlds like why isn't it enough to just live on your planet in peace and uh, sustainable contentment so i think even the the sort of pro-alien like exophilic maybe or exoplanetary idea although it's good in the way that the men in red talked about it in terms of just preparing your mindset to not be afraid of the other, I think it, it also brings the sort of science of astrobiology and the search for extraterrestrial intelligence back into this sort of conspiracy worldview that you're describing where there is always a higher power um, and it always has the power to intervene in good or bad ways. And so aliens, uh, even if we're, you know, we think that they're communists who will come to save us in like the Posadas tradition. Um, it's still giving them this sort of anthropocentric, even capital capitalist centric uh, veneer. Uh, you follow me a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. There's something the theological in that of 
something uh, there's always something re- replacing God uh, in a way. I I think that uh, this uh, compulsive narrative of uh, exploration of other galaxies, other worlds, etc., colonizing other planets, the concept of terraforming, for example, of course they exude uh, capitalistic arrogance, you know, because it's uh, it's just a, a way of saying that the, the you know the the markets uh, must expand uh, and stuff like that. Uh, there's uh, a new utopian impulse always underlying, always uh, working under uh, that ideological level, of course, but what capitalism has always done is perverting utopian impulses and exploiting them, instrumentalizing them, uh, commodifying them, um, etc. So it's it, 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 it's a very complex it's a very complex uh, issue. Uh, now there's, uh, there are some comrades in Italy that are writing uh, stuff uh, about the fact uh, that all this uh, talk about the space uh, is just a way of saying that we already gave up. Uh, um, on this planet, you know, we we don't think we can save life on this planet anymore, you know, because of the climate disaster right. and 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 all that stuff. And so, uh, the more we grow disillusioned about uh, uh, the po- the possibility of saving life on this planet, uh, the more capitalism gives us a, a story of uh, um, related, uh, you know, to the uh, colonization of other planets, uh, terraforming Mars, uh, uh, and stuff like that. Uh, It's uh, um, a way of uh, making us uh, more accustomed, more used to the idea that this... this, uh, we, one day we we will be forced to leave this planet, but it, it's not literal, of course. It's, uh, uh, you know, it's uh, uh, ideologically strategical. Uh, it, um, it allows capitalism to go on and on and on without solving any of the problems that are uh, making this planet ever more inhabitable. Yeah, and this is, I think, the significance of Elon Musk, not only in his sort of takeover of of NASA, you know, so much of NASA's funding went to SpaceX, um, uh, based on this premise that he was going to lead the way towards creating a new society on Mars and beyond. And for a long time, a lot of people believed he could do this. Um, And... You know, you could be a uh, some sort of uh, uh, scientist and say, like, look, your, your plans don't make any sense. Like, life on Mars would not be good, even if it's possible. Terraforming Mars, you know, will, will not solve these problems. And um, But the political message uh, is, for me, it's that this is the only planet we have. Um, what's coming here, no matter how catastrophic, is something that we are going to have to survive. And we... You know, people have always survived catastrophes, and uh, it's not going to be... It might be the end of the world, but it won't be the end of, of the planet. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's comforting to think like, well, maybe we can all get on a spaceship and leave, and maybe this uh, eccentric genius billionaire will do it. But now that he's made himself so public with Twitter, I, uh, millions of people are seeing that this guy is not a genius, that he is a... He's a, a jerk. 
a jerk. Um, <laughs> a jerk. And so I think there's a significance of that happening around the same time that these UFOs that have been the UAPs that have been like talked about by the U.S. military and like talked about in the New York Times for the last uh, three years or so. Um, the sort of like return of the UFO to the more mainstream discussion, um, those are being shot down and, and shown to be weather balloons. Uh, or a, in the case of the, the, the uh, impetus of it, a, a spy balloon, um, raising the specter that we're just, you know, we're, all we have is Cold War. You know, all we have is geopolitics, not exopolitics. Um, so I think that was a, a I think there's a, is an important reckoning with these fantasies and myths um that's making us start to realize that okay all all we do have is earth and we have to figure out how to survive now yeah yeah i i, I agree i agree now i think the priority the priority is thinking about this planet now which doesn't mean we shouldn't you know create works of fiction set uh, in outer space and stuff like that but it depends it depends uh, on uh, what kind of fiction uh, we write it depends what uh, the allegorical value of that fiction is was was uh, it depends on uh, the ways we interpret the utopian impulse because there are uh, you know narratives about outer space or even life on other planets uh, that uh, aren't intrinsically capitalistically arrogant uh, uh, or stuff like that. I'm, I'm thinking, uh, for example, about Ursula K. Le Guin, uh, uh, because science fiction has always interpreted also the, the desire for for revolution. But in this particular context, I think that uh, uh, most uh, uh, um, uh, uh, most uh, uh, Im- imagery uh, which we usually uh, we usually found in science fiction has been recuperated into capitalist realism. So we must be very careful in handling that kind of stuff. Yeah, there's one more question I want to ask about your ill will piece. I feel like we're, we're thinking about the UFO phenomenon along the same lines in terms of, you know, it's, it's not important necessarily what these objects actually are. It's important the, the way it affects people, the way, the way people think and feel about it. And um, this sort of brought to mind Adorno and Horkheimer's tension between the mystical and scientific and dialectic of the Enlightenment, where, you know, the, the modern era, we're supposed to believe that everything is explainable by science. But of course, that's not true. So these uh, sort of unexplainable or mystical impulses always arise. Also, the traditions of Charles Fort, the Fortean tradition, and to a lesser extent, Jacques Vallée, the ufologist, trying to interpret paranormal phenomenon not so much as in this material thing but more up an emotional phenomenon so why do you think it's important to emphasize the ufo phenomenon in a in a poetic way well uh, the, the fact that the ufo sightings ufo waves of sightings uh, uh, always happen in peculiar moments in which we need uh, more, uh, you know, uh, unconstrained imagination in which we look at the sky uh, uh, looking for, uh, you know, uh, liberation for expanding our horizon. Uh, In 1978, uh, um, uh, Italy was crisscrossed by uh, checkpoints everywhere. 
there was a military control everywhere, thousands of people arrested, and uh, the public discourse was uh, extremely polarized between, uh, you know, the state and terrorism, you know, uh, there was an imperious uh, demand for taking sides, you know, a request from, from, from the powers that be, everybody uh, would have to take sides, you know, uh, do you side with the state, with democracy, or do you side with terrorism, with uh, subversive, uh, subversives, with, you know, bloody killers, uh, uh, you know, and those were the only two options uh, made available by, by, by the state, uh, by the, the media, by power, uh, you know, and uh, all other options were repressed, were badly repressed. There was no way of escaping uh, uh, that mechanism and uh, all of sudden Italians started to look at the firmament at night, look at the starry sky and see UFOs and talking about them to uh, thousand uh, sightings registered, uh, 70 closed encounters of the third kind, uh, a dozen people claiming they had been abducted by benign extraterrestrials, uh, uh, and all of a sudden there was this kind of, uh, uh, you know, collective uh, fixation, collective obsession with UFOs. Why? What uh, was the relationship uh, between what was happening in politics, uh, in uh, society during the 55 days of the Moro kidnapping, uh, the beginning uh, of the state of emergency, etc., and the fact that Italians wanted to see mysterious lights in the sky. So, uh, uh, and, and then it happened again. Uh, during the pandemic emergency here uh, in Italy, uh, we had the strictest uh, uh, lockdowns uh, and uh, they gave the opportunity to the state to, you know, uh, <laughs> follow uh, their authority, traditionally authoritarian instincts and give uh, the most paradoxical uh, and, and uh, I don't know, uh, poliziesco in Italian and police-like interpretation of the pandemic emergency uh, and uh, the public debate was uh, constrained uh, once again. There were only two options. Are, uh, do you side with the state or do you, do you side with virus denialists? Uh, anyone who tried to, you know, express uh, a political uh, concrete criticism of the way the state was handling uh, the pandemic in a neoliberal, in a self-deresponsabilizing and uh, scapegoat pointing way. Anyone who tried to do that uh, was instantly labeled uh, as a virus denialist, as an anti-vaxxer and, 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 and stuff like that, exactly like in 1978. And all of a sudden, UFOs appeared. Italians, but not only Italians in that circumstance, all over the West, anyway, people started to look at the sky and see mysterious lights. Nowadays, it will be very easy to you know, to uh, understand what those lights are because you have the internet, you have a lot of ways 
to to check your facts, uh, you know, and uh, for example, uh, understand that the mysterious light you saw in the sky last night wasn't mysterious at all because it was the International Space Station because there are apps for, for uh, that you can download and install in your smartphone to, to follow the ISS uh, flight. But uh, people started to talk about unidentified uh, uh, phenomena, unidentified objects, because uh, they needed the unidentified. Mm. Everything else, e everyone <clears throat> was violently identified. And all of a sudden, they started to dream of unidentified things. Can't be a coincidence. of the UFO era. On the Saturday evening of July 5th, 1947, Mark Brazel left his remote ranch for a trip to the closest town, Corona, New Mexico. After a few miles, he flipped on the truck's radio. There was no reception yet, but he kept it on to let the music and syllables emerge from the static as he got closer. Advertising jingles, some baseball scores, and then what sounded like news of an invasion. Needing to know what was happening, Brazil accelerated until he heard the interview with pilot Kevin Arnold, describing three immaculate shining disks flying with no clear propulsion system in perfect formation over Mount Rainier, Washington. A pie plate that was cut in half with a sort of a convex triangle in the rear, kind of weaving and going at a terrific The story has spread the world, the newscaster said, cutting in. People are seeing these flying saucers everywhere. And once he reached Corona, it was all anyone was talking about at the local bar. Nearly everyone said they had seen strange lights in the sky recently, but they couldn't be sure what it was. Maybe it has something to do with nearby military installations. Maybe it was Soviet technology. Mac wanted to have something to add, so he mentioned some strange debris he had found scattered over a half mile on the outskirts of his ranch. Most of it was metallic, like a type of tinfoil he had never seen before, but there were chunks of wood and rubber in there as well. Where could it have come from, he remembered grumbling, as he gathered it up to dump it in some nearby brush? The sky? It was an exciting story, and everyone agreed Mac should go try to find the material and bring it to the authorities. Maybe, just maybe, one of these things had crashed, and now the world would know what they really were. Mac went home the next day and gathered up some of the debris and drove to the nearest sheriff's office in Roswell, New Mexico. The sheriff took one look at the stuff, thought it was military, and called Major Jesse Marcel at the Roswell Army Airfield. The major accompanied Brazil back to the ranch to gather more debris that evening. Although Brazil had only told a handful of people about the debris, rumors of a crash-flying saucer had spread fast enough to reach the local radio station. The major and his superior officer in Fort Worth knew what Brazil had found was a secretive Weller balloon project. There were even chunks of commercially available scotch tape visible in the debris. But the flying saucer rumors provided an adequate cover for keeping the project a secret. On July 8th, 
Roswell Army Air Force issued a press release that indeed an intact crashed flying disc had been found and transferred to military custody. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. Army officers say the missile found sometime last week has been inspected at Roswell, New Mexico, and sent to Wright Field, Ohio, for further inspection. Headline edition will bring you special reports and interviews in a moment. Soon after, they realized they made a mistake, and the government quickly switched their story, admitting it was a weather balloon. But it was too late. The second statement sounded like a cover-up, and with government confirmation of physical contact with flying saucers, the flying saucer craze had ended, and the UFO era had begun. And it lasted over half a century until cameras became more accessible to the public, exposing most reports as frauds or easily explainable, putting the UFO era into crisis. This dynamic became so obvious that throughout the 90s and aughts, tabloid-style UFO shows had to transition from publishing all UFO footage as evidence of the phenomena to a fact-or-fiction-style format of debunking most of the footage they air and then, like Factor Fiction, asserting a story is true that is easily debunked through a few minutes on Google. Soon, literally everyone had both a high-quality camera on their person at all times and the means to publish their footage immediately. And yet, no remarkable UFO footage emerged. By 2015, the host of one of the most popular and best-respected television shows in the paranormal community, Joe Rogan, admitted that every UFO or close encounter case he looked into was a fraud, and the whole half-century had been nothing but a flying saucer craze after all. And then Roswell happened again. The U.S. Navy has finally acknowledged that videos appearing to show UFOs flying through the air are real. They don't call them UFOs. They call them unidentified aerial phenomena. They, these, uh, the several videos they're talking about were recorded years ago by fighter pilots, Then in 2017, they were made public by the New York Times. The front page of the New York Times, December 16, 2017, announced the long-awaited disclosure. Senators and military officials went on the record to show that the UFO phenomenon was not only real, but they had secretly dedicated large amounts of resources to investigating it. Not only that, but billionaire hotelier Robert Bigelow and Blink-182 crooner Tom DeLonge and Lockheed Martin's experimental military contractor Skunk Works possessed mysterious metamaterials considered by all to be part of a crashed alien spacecraft and were making progress in their project to reverse engineer its cosmic secrets for military and commercial use. A lesser-read follow-up in Newsweek revealed the same program funded the study of demonic forces at Skinwalker Ranch a month later, reinvigorating the faith of the more mystical and New Age believers. There was something for everyone. The only thing that anyone had ever gotten wrong was the name. UFOs were a failure a thing of the past. That era was over. This was going to be the era of the UAP. Dude, this is a fucking drawn bro. There's a whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. But the footage they released as proof was just as bad and easily explainable as UFO footage had always been. Grainy, color off, no convincing detail to be had. In the Nimitz videos, what appears to be a rapid motion of the objects the pilot believed to be a drone is actually the rapid motion of the camera just as footage cuts off. In Go Fast, only a gliding white blur is momentarily visible. The footage would have been useless if not accompanied by the stories of military brass, the perfect specimen of once skeptical, high-level military operators. 
Military culture has always been shot through with Mike Flynn's, but this was not something anyone in the media ever really admits. So you pair one evangelical colonel with a Hollywood huckster like Jeremy Corbell, get him on the Joe Rogan experience, and suddenly even the skeptics were converted into believers. That was Jeremy Corbell was talking yeah, about yeah. that the other day. That they, um, you know, it's hard, it's hard to say like what kind of information he's getting, how accurate it is. But they're basically saying, think about the movie Abyss, where the aliens lived underwater. It was like, that's probably what's going on. Yeah. That there's some sort of alien base underwater or some meeting place where that's where they hide. That's where they go to be undetected. Do you think you're going to see it in your lifetime? Bigfoot or aliens? Aliens. Like, uh, you know where it's like, oh, like we have to like talk to them now. We have well, to like interact with them. There are, there's a video that is impossible to ignore. There's some things that are impossible to ignore. And then there's eyewitness testimonies of people who are rock solid, totally dependent.